Welcome to the Future Financial Planners podcast, brought to you by the Financial Planning Association of Australia. Whether you're a student, a graduate, or an early career advisor, join us as we dive into the ins and outs of becoming a financial planner. I'm your host, Azaria Bell, bringing you tips from the experts on career strategy, sanity, and success. Today's episode is focused on structuring your degree in the right way. I'll be joined by Dr. Catherine Hunt from Griffith University to talk about what you should be considering when selecting your subjects. We'll be going through things like picking the right majors, studying online versus in-person, part-time or full-time, electives, and how to utilize postgraduate education to further your career. Now that's just touching the surface of everything we went through, so let's get right into it. Hi, Dr. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're really, really excited to chat to you on the podcast because I know a question that you probably get a lot and that anyone who works in financial planning gets is, how do I actually structure my degree to be the most relevant to my career? So we have a ton of questions to get through in this episode, so we might just get right into it. Awesome. For anyone who doesn't know who you are, Dr. Catherine, could you give us a bit of a background on you and what you do for work? Sure, sure. I really like studying. So I studied a lot at uni. I did psychology and then I studied financial planning, did my honours in finance and did a PhD in law and economics. And I also worked as a financial planner for Aspire Financial Planning for five years. So I have a little bit of the nerd side, the academic side and the practical what's it really like side. Now I'm an academic at Griffith. Amazing. So you've had in your study history a mixture of economics, finance, psychology, all sorts of things. So you've probably got a good idea of what works with financial planning because often when you're studying, it's not just financial planning. You might have a major or some electives in there as well. So I guess the starting point for anyone who wants to get into the financial planning industry is actually making sure that the degree that you're studying will qualify you to be a financial planner. So could you talk to us a little bit about what an approved degree is and how do you know if you're doing one? Yeah, definitely a good first step. <laughs> there's of course, there's so many uh, higher education providers in Australia at the moment offering all kinds of degrees and courses. And we're really lucky that with financial planning, FASIA have a full list of all of the approved degrees and all of the approved courses and subjects within those degrees. And they've even organised the degrees by institution. So if you're interested in studying with us at Griffith, you can just search Griffith Uni on the FASIA website and find the courses that are authorised from us. And if you're interested in one of the other, I think there's like, there must be 30 other really high quality institutions that are offering on campus, online, approved degrees. Some of them are like shorter and, and more to get you out there in the real world. Some of them are a bit longer. Some of them are online, some on campus. So regardless of which one suits you best, you can just quickly check. It takes literally like one minute to see if it's on the list, on the FASIA approved degrees list. And then so long as it's on the list, you're good to go. That is excellent. And I know that a few years ago, there were nowhere near as many options. It seems like financial planning is popping up as a, as a much more viable studying career option for a lot of universities. Absolutely. And I think the law helped that because now you have to do uh, one of these approved degrees for new entrants. So yes, we've been helped along. That's exactly right. 
So let's talk a little bit about majors because I know that this is one of the questions that I get a lot and it's something that I experienced too at university. I think I picked up a finance major and then I dropped that. I didn't like that. Picked up accounting and I dropped that. I didn't like that. And then I ended up doing a bunch of random electives. So as you'd know, the, the journey's different for everyone. But for anyone who's thinking about they're doing a financial planning major and they've got space for a second major, what are some of the majors that might complement a financial planning career? So... At Griffith, and it's pretty similar across other institutions, there's usually four main majors that'll be within, say, the commerce degree or within the business degree, however it's structured. And they they usually are, like you mentioned, accounting, finance and economics as the other options. So the challenge is finance is designed for people who love Excel spreadsheets and staying indoors and never seeing humans. (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is some people, like they're just amazing at it. And similarly for accounting, if you want to help companies to get ahead and companies to pay less tax, then accounting is amazing as well, but it's very company focused. And economics is, you know, it's, it's quite big picture. So for financial planning, it's not directly related, I think, in many ways. We have to understand economics, but we don't have to be economists, if that makes sense. So those majors, I think... In first year, if you do one of those introductory courses in accounting, finance or economics and you love it, maybe pick that as your major, for sure, for sure. But I think the majors that could be most helpful is the path that you've taken, which is find the courses that really interest you, that could have an interesting overlap. So when I went to my job interview for the job I got with Aspire, my then, no, he wasn't my boss yet, and he was looking at my resume in front of me and he says, oh, you've got a psychology degree. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I'm studying financial planning. I'm I'm studying, I'm almost finished. And he was like, oh, I don't care about that. No one in financial planning has a psychology degree and everyone needs one. So can you start Mm -hmm. on Monday? (laughs) Literally, that's how the conversation went. And I was like, did I just get a job for a psychology degree that I thought I'd wasted my time on? Holy cow. That's amazing. Yeah, incredible, because then when you're actually in financial planning, as you know, when you're seeing clients, you have to be able to listen, give them space, ask them powerful questions, you have to build trust, and you have to be able to journey with them and really care about their well-being. So, (laughs) interestingly, some of the the softer people studies can really complement Um, financial planning. Similarly, there's some courses in marketing, for example, like consumer behavior and some of these more business psychology angled courses that I'd highly recommend as well. So the thing that many students don't realize is that once you're enrolled in the university, and this is across the board, you can just enroll in courses in the university. So you don't so there are some courses like third year biomedical science courses where they will literally see your random name in the list and kick you out <laughs> for sure. Cause you don't have the prerequisites, but if you have the prerequisites and you wake up on time and you enroll in the tutorial on time and you get the right tutorial, there's a very good chance you'll be able to do that course as an elective. So you can really search across the whole university and curate your own uh, second major if you want to. Of course, if accounting or finance or economics or any of the other like core complementary majors for financial planning sing to you, then do those. But they certainly won't set you apart in the real world because that's what everyone does. Is a second major in accounting. Pretty, pretty straightforward. 
Pretty standard, exactly. Yeah. I know I definitely <laughs> felt that pressure when I was at university as well. But yeah, doing those electives, I think a couple of the electives I did, uh, one of them was in, in property management, just because I felt that I didn't really uh, know as much as I could do about property going into financial planning. Mm. And then just an elective in sociology out of pure interest. And it was a nice Great break mm-hmm. from all of the law heavy subjects that I was doing that that um, semester that really helped my grades as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So cool. So you mentioned a bit earlier that um, some universities and different degrees might offer online or in-person options. Now, it's great to have those options, but what are your personal thoughts on doing a financial planning degree online versus in-person? What are some of the pros and cons of each? Well, I have very strong views on it, so you'll have to take my views with a pinch of salt, (laughs) (laughs) as always. (laughs) So I think the online degree is perfect if you are a single parent living in remote New South Wales, working full-time, running a financial planning firm and a sheep property. Okay. In that scenario, yes, if you are like, oh my God, that's me, then you are allowed in my books to do an online degree. You go for it. You know, this is just designed for you. If you live near a university or would be happy to relocate because you're like, oh, I want to live on the Gold Coast or you know, some other cool place that has an on-campus financial planning degree, Uh, I would highly recommend that you go and attend on campus and you attend every lecture and every workshop and every tutorial and you get to know the lecturers and you will be employed in the first year in financial planning if you do that. Um, It's not complicated. So the online is fantastic for equity reasons. So like I said, if you if you really are juggling family and you don't even know if you can fit study into your schedule but you do want to study financial planning, that online option could be for you. But I would really discourage anyone from doing it who doesn't have a real personal equity reason like they're a sheep farmer kind of thing. <laughs> My family are sheep farmers, so... I can let them into it. Well, you can speak to those people, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And get their their requirements. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I totally agree. I think doing my degree in person, probably one of the best outcomes I had from that was making friends with all my lecturers and tutors. And and they're the ones that really encouraged me to take those opportunities with scholarships or internships and job opportunities that they really paid off. And also just going to on-campus events like networking events and all of that kind of stuff, that stuff's priceless. And that really prepares you um, for going into the industry. But I imagine there's a lot of people listening who, as you say, they might be single mothers, they might be working full-time and studying on top of that. So from what I understand, it's um, very easy to study online these days if people need to do that. Absolutely. It's very easy. The enrolment process is easy. There's online workshops and when you can't attend them, they're just recorded. So from an equity perspective and to make study easy for people who are really busy, it's just amazing. It's such a great revolution. We've come very far. Mm-hmm. So another question I think a lot of people might be battling with when they're thinking about venturing into a career in financial planning is, do I do it as quickly as possible and do a full-time degree in three or four years? Or do I do part-time study and maybe try and balance out some work experience with that? I guess when you're doing study part-time, you've always got that thought of, I could be working full-time by now. So what advice would you give to people in those situations? 
again, I have very strong views on this. So just a tailor what I say to your own situation. I, I know there's sheep farmers listening who are thinking that just doesn't work for me. Um, but my recommendation is to always do a full-time study load and to power through the degree. So do it as fast as you can and be overwhelmed with how many exams you have in exam week. That is the path. And the reason for this is um, tenfold. One is, let me ask you a question. How many times has anyone asked you what your GPA was? Um, I can honestly say I've, I've never been asked that question. <laughs> in, in all of the roles I've taken in financial planning, that's never come yeah. up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was uh, like top of my degree, like you were working for my, my boss. I'd been working there for a couple of years. He said, how are you going in your studies? Are you passing? I was like, am I, <laughs> am I passing? <laughs> mate, mate, I got a dis- distinction the other day and I cried because it wasn't a high distinction, okay? <laughs> like I'm, I'm definitely more than passing. Thank you. So, But the bottom line is no one cares about your GPA. There's a couple of firms that will care, but almost mostly they'll care that you got through the degree. So if you take a full-time study load, four courses, and you find halfway through the semester, something's come up in your personal life and you totally can't handle it, you can either, if you really can't handle it, just fail a couple of the courses and that'll be on your record forever. But you can also seek uh, compassionate withdrawal from from the courses as well when something comes up. So I think just go for it. Absolutely just go for it. Go for full time. There's a law, it's called Parkinson's law. And I think we all know this. It's the way we become much more efficient at what we're doing just before the deadline. Mm, That is so true. So if we take one course at a time, because we think, look, we can't handle more than one course at a time, we will spend the same amount of time stressing about that one course as we would about four courses. And it's just that when you have four courses, you just smash it out and get through it, doom, 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 do your assignments, look at the recording, boom, 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 what are, what are they really asking for? What's the minimum I need to do to get a good mark in this course? You're so focused. So I'd highly recommend that. And even, I think it's a little bit extreme what Griffith have. We have a two-year Bachelor of Applied Financial Advice because we have trimesters, so it's still six uh, trimesters. I think two years is a bit extreme. I think over three years is more of a healthy, sustainable approach for most people, but definitely full-time study load is what I recommend. Unless, yeah, single parent sheep farmer in the bush. Yeah. I had an interesting experience in the way that I did both. So I think for the first three years of my degree, I was full-time and I was so productive. I got the best grades in that time for sure. So I totally relate to what you're saying. And then in the last year or so, I had to drop down to part-time. I think I was getting a bit burnt out. So ended up doing three subjects, doing some part-time work and extending my degree a little bit. But at that stage, that worked for me. Um, But I think doing that full-time workload for the first couple of years really taught me how to manage my time because you really don't have any other option. Absolutely. So of course you, in your experience, you went and did a PhD. Now I'm imagining that a PhD probably isn't necessary for the average person who wants to get into financial planning, but of course there are study options after a bachelor's and maybe after a bit of work experience. What kind of programs are out there that maybe would complement your education and experience in financial planning and perhaps even increase your earning capacity in the long run? Uh Yes, the pathway is definitely to do a bachelor's followed by a master's followed by a CFP, definitely. So, and we will follow this trend more and more. So as if you look at 
the statistics for higher education in Australia and how many people have degrees, it's kind of exponentially increasing because we really have degrees for everyone. We have so many different majors to, to suit anyone and their interests. So what that means is that it's harder for us to actually show how hardworking and clever we are with just a bachelor's. And that will happen more and more in the future. So in Europe, for example, they call degrees three plus two. It's the Bologna system three plus two because you do your three year undergrad and your two year specialization. That is just the path. If you only have a bachelor degree, it's it's like you've finished high school because they're they're very educated, they're very focused on continuing their education into their young adult lives. And I think that will happen in Australia as well, more and more. So the master's degrees are basically bachelor's degrees in a way in Australia. That's the way we run them. We're lucky we don't have the European system um, because our master's degrees are coursework. So it's, it's the same. You take courses and you have assignments and you have exams. And so it's definitely doable, especially with a bachelor in financial advice. The master's of financial advice will be, of course, much harder and will push you, but it will be a continuation of your studies similar to CFP. And the PhD, we have a lot of financial planners actually who are interested in doing their PhD, uh, but they usually do it after they've been financial planners for a couple of decades. So they really understand the sector and they understand the research that they want to do because PhD is a research degree. Yeah. And it's not something that you kind of usually would do part-time as well as a full-time job, unless you're extremely, extremely good at managing your time <laughs> and your sanity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so a question I have that I still, I still ask myself now. So when I was at university, I really enjoyed studying. I really loved studying financial planning and I always wanted to go specifically more into behavioral finance. So if anyone who's doing a bachelor's degree now, maybe they're near the end of their studies, but they're not quite ready to leave the academic world forever. What are some of the options for people who maybe want to do an honours on top of their bachelor's degree? I would highly recommend honours because it is so uncommon that people do honours in the business schools in Australia. So it really sets people apart in a way as much as a master's degree does. It's also much harder than a master's degree, even though it's a one-year program and masters are usually one and a half to two years in Australia. So I would highly recommend an honours degree there. It's really, really great. It also opens up doors. So a master, with a master's degree, you can't do a PhD because you've only done coursework. So you have to have done research. So you have to have done honours in order to do a PhD. So it opens up both paths, whereas a master's is, is uh, just a master's. Uh, in the community, masters still carry a big strong reputation. So it's still very worthwhile to do masters as well. But yeah, honours is great. With honours, you get to pick a topic. So you could pick, for example, a behavioural finance type top topic like, oh, do clients' optimism levels affect their investment choices? And you get to just study that for a year. It's great. That is awesome. Yeah, I, I still think about going back and doing that. So this is do a it. very encouraging talk. <laughs> Definitely do it. Another thing that I did consider doing at university, but I ended up finding an opportunity another way was, I know that a lot of universities offer integrated internships, which you can actually earn credit points for during your degree. Um, what is your experience with chatting to students who have done that? 
It's interesting in financial advice uh, because we have a situation where every employer wants to hire students and so all the students already have jobs from first mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. So they can also then uh, choose to enrol in a work integrated course with at Griffith anyway, we do that system, uh, through their current employer, that's fine. And yeah, they can get absolutely credit uh, for just the work that they're doing. The challenge with it is that you're not learning anything, you're just doing your job in that scenario where you already have a job. Yeah. Yeah, yep. Uh, so the Bachelor of Applied Financial Advice that we have at Griffith has integrated and compulsory 20 to 40 credit points of what we call work integrated learning, which is internships basically. Mm -hmm. So everyone knows that work experience is almost as important as your educational qualifications. So it's really important to do that while you study. The only thing is we don't work in a sector of finance or accounting where you need the university to find you an internship. So we certainly will if you don't have one, but if you don't have an internship, that's because you don't want one, basically. So yeah, I understand. I have a video of this on, on my Vimeo thing about how to get a job in financial planning and it's guaranteed and it'll take two weeks because every single student is wanted by financial planning firms. So anyone can get paid experience whenever they want it. It's simply a matter of, is now the right time for me to go and get paid doing what I want to do or will I continue with Domino's, working at Domino's? So. so with the students you've talked to who have landed internships, how have they gone about it? So the way that they've gone about it is by looking at Google Maps and typing in financial advice firms and finding the financial advice firms in their area. And then they've written cover letters that say, I want to work for you because you're near me. Uh, I've had a look at your website and you've got a cool, diverse, young group of staff and that looks cool. And you focus on millennial advice and I like that. And when I'm your intern, I can uh, make tea and I can wash walls and I can do photocopying and I can take notes in meetings and I can pick up the phone and smile and please hire me. And then they print it off, put it in an envelope with their awful empty resume that doesn't matter because it's all about <laughs> attitude. No, no one cares about experience. It's all about attitude. And they post it in the mail to those firms, those 10 firms that are in their suburb, and they get jobs within two weeks. That's how you wow. do it. That's such good advice because I think the, probably the hardest part of getting an internship is getting over the whole overthinking it and actually just, just yeah. actioning it. Yeah, just contact them and tell them you want to work for them. And if you put in there a line that says also I can work for free for two weeks, which is basically an internship, it's one day a week over, yeah, the 12-week um, semester, so basically two weeks, yeah. then they go, oh, okay, so you're not just, you know, in it for the money you you really are you want to learn from us so it just there's ways that we signal our attitude and our good attitude because people want to hire people with good attitudes so that's one way we signal that yeah and you talked about just doing the simple jobs like taking notes in meetings and photocopying papers and that can sound really mundane but i know that i in my internship got so much value from that 
um, actually sitting in on a client meeting and getting to see how an advisor interacts with their clients and the body language and the cues that clients pick up on, that's something that you really can't be taught without having that experience. And one of my jobs for the first few weeks, because I started my internship just before Christmas, was writing Christmas cards for the clients. Mm-hmm. And at the time, that seemed like a very useless task. But when they eventually hired me full time, I felt like I knew all of the clients' names already. Mm-hmm. So there's always mm-hmm. a benefit to your internship jobs. Absolutely. And just being in the environment and just hearing how they talk about the processes that they're doing, the challenges that they face in financial planning in the real world. Mm -hmm. It's all so valuable just to get inside the office and do whatever it takes once you're there. Yeah, that's exactly it. And my way of getting my internship was a a bit of an unconventional one, but it was actually through winning a scholarship at university. It came with a, a financial award and an opportunity for an internship. And I think from everyone I speak to who is studying at financial planning, they all seem to be so hesitant to apply for scholarships because they might think that they don't meet the criteria or they're not good enough to win a scholarship. So what would your words of encouragement be for anyone who's thinking about applying for a financial planning scholarship? Oh, just apply for all of them. When you search scholarships on whichever university you choose, go to their scholarships page. There's hundreds there. You'll be able to narrow it down by your field, by your gender, etc., and just apply for all of them because it's literally free money. Mm-hmm. It's definitely worthwhile doing and it costs you nothing and no one knows and who cares? Just do it. Just apply. Exactly. And, and if you apply, you look, you might not get it. If you don't apply, you definitely won't get it. So just yeah. put your application in there, forget about it. And who knows, you, you may come out of it with an amazing opportunity. Mm-hmm. If someone said to you, oh, it's going to take you two hours of writing a really awful, boring application and you'll have the chance, maybe you'll get $5,000 scholarship and an internship from it, from your two hours of work. Do you think that's worthwhile? Everyone's going to be like, yes. <laughs> that's probably the only time in your life you'd be earning $2,500 an hour. Exactly. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly it. So for a lot of people who are studying financial planning, it might have been you know many years since they were at school and they're kind of getting used to the format of doing study or maybe it's just the first time they've ever had to really try um, in their education. What are some of the study tips that you'd give to those people? My study tips are a little bit unconventional. I always focus on exactly what I need to study and learning that 100%. -hmm. So what you need to study is the words that come out of your lecturer's mouth because your lecturer writes the exam and they write Mm -hmm. the assignment. So, yes, there's also a textbook. And there's 56 chapters in a textbook and it's super interesting and really wonderful and awesome and you do need it for your future career. But for the purposes of getting through this course without pulling your hair out, you need to just focus on making sure you understand the ex- all of the core ideas of the course and how they all pull together. So every single word that the lecturer talks about, every paper that they refer to, every website they refer to, follow exactly the path of what the lecturer tells you to do, basically. So if there's lecture notes, learn the lecture notes, learn all of the concepts that are talked about in the lecture notes off by heart so well that you're 100% on those components. That's my recommendation. That's it. Just focus on what you need to learn and not all the rest. That's simple but very, very effective advice. 
I know that in my experience though, sometimes all of that just goes out of the door when it comes to exam preparation. Like I'll do everything I'm supposed to do during the semester. It gets to exam block. I've got four exams in two weeks and I feel like I've forgotten everything. So how can you deal with that stress coming up to exam time to make sure that you get the best results possible without driving yourself crazy? So the best way, what I do is I summarize my the lecture notes, for example, and every word that the lecturer says during the lectures. I summarize them each week using colors. So if you look at mind map technology from Tony Buzan, you can see how to use colors and images and whatnot if you're a visual learner like me. And so I end up with a book, an A4 book per course at the end of the semester. And I have, if there's 12 weeks, 12 pages of summaries because each week I've already summarized it into one page. So I already have the summaries to work from, to then learn, to turn into palm cards, to get ready for the exam. So it's already there. So I never learn passively. I don't, I wouldn't be listening to this podcast without pen and paper in my hand mm-hmm. because I need to yeah. put things on paper because later I'll think, oh, sorry, I said some amazing stuff. I just can't remember exactly what it was and I don't want to have to go and re-listen to it so I can just find the bit of paper that I wrote my notes on and then I'm set. So Mm -hmm. get everything down on paper as you're working through it. Don't look at one piece of reading or one lecture recording without pen and paper. Make notes and make them in a way that people learn, which is not from the top of the page to the bottom of the page. No one's brain works like that. So spend a couple of minutes looking up on um, YouTube or Google or wherever, however you want to learn, how the brain learns and the best 2D material you need for learning, 2D meaning like on pen and paper, and then, yeah, figure out your learning style and go with that for the course. Yeah, totally. I remember when I was at uni, there were a few different YouTubers that I watched religiously because I loved hearing about how they take notes or how they memorize information because I have a terrible memory. I still have a terrible memory, but university taught me to write everything down, everything that's relevant. And I carried that through to my career. And now if I'm asking my boss a question, I'm typing at exactly the same time that he's speaking because I know I can't just rely on my memory. But you made a really good point before about the textbooks. So I remember in my first year of university, they told us that we needed these massive textbooks for each course. And I thought, oh my goodness gracious, how am I going to remember all of this information? And how am I going to afford it? Because they're 150 (laughs) bucks each. Exactly, exactly right. But then towards the end of my degree, I realised that a lot of the information, as you said, isn't required information. You don't have to remember all of that. You just need to remember those key important points. And in terms of note taking as well, that's a really interesting point about mind mapping. Is that that what you said? Mind mapping? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to look into that if I ever do go back to uni. But when I was studying what I do, because a lot of the times the lecturers would have the slides available before class. So I would copy and paste the contents of the slides into a document that looked nice for me, print that off, and then write extra notes on top because I cannot write fast at all on paper. But at least having that content there and highlighting it, scribbling on it um, in a way, as you said, that just makes sense to you. It doesn't need to make sense to anyone else. Mm -hmm. But by the time I'd get to exams, I'd be like, oh, I I knew what I meant when I wrote Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And I'm really happy that you were doing it tactilely. So with a pen and paper in the lecture, they've done, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of research. They just do experiments. They just give half of the group of students laptops and say, take notes and half the students pen and paper. And the pen and paper note takers learn 10 times more than the typers when they're listening to an actual lecture. So that tactile way, find a way for you to tactilely take notes during the lecture. Absolutely. 
For sure. And we did talk a little bit earlier about the value of getting to know your lecturers and your tutors. But for those people out there like myself when I started at university who were maybe quite introverted and shy and they're in the mindset of, I just go to university, I do my work and I go home. What words of encouragement would you give to students to actually get involved in university life? Well, first off, about approaching lecturers. All lecturers are huge nerds and we're all (laughs) very socially awkward ourselves. That's how we ended yep. up in staying in university. So you can just know we're easy to approach because we're just big geeks ourselves. Um, that's one thing. But also you'll make the best friends of your life at university and it's not easy to sign up to clubs on club sign-up day or to rock up to some of the events by yourself to some of those club events. But once you do, you meet other people who are also in exactly the same situation as you and you find people with amazing common interests and you make really great friends. You'll find you'll make friends with people who you study with and also who you do similar sports to or have similar cultural uh, club alignments with. So it's such an important opportunity because the friends we make at school, for example, we were kind of thrown into that school. We didn't pick our high schools. Our parents picked our high schools usually. So we ended up with a random group of friends and we made it work because you have to. Um, But when we're in uni, we can actually find people just through being active. It doesn't have to be an active search for these people, but we'll find them just by going to the events, all of the professional events, just rocking up and having a go. Absolutely. And I said this in an earlier episode with Glenn, who I actually went to university with, that my biggest regret at university was not doing that sooner. So my first year, I was very much marks focused. I would go to class, go home and study. I didn't have a social life. I never talked to anyone in my lectures because I didn't know how, to be honest. And then after joining a leadership program, um, I made a ton of friends. I joined the Commerce Association made a heap of friends through there and I still see them now. They're some of my best friends. And not only that, but they're also my peers in the finance, accounting, economics, um, financial planning industry. So there's huge, huge value in that as well. Oh yeah. When you get a client who's got a complex scenario with half their assets in Singapore, half their assets in Australia, and you're like, oh my gosh, oh wait, I know someone, I studied with them and she actually specializes in expats. I'm going to call her hey, I've got this scenario, what do I need to look out for to figure out if I can give this advice? So yeah, we can, it's so important that network. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good way to end this episode. Dr. Catherine, you've given us so much helpful information. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Future Financial Planners podcast. Brought to you by the Financial Planning Association of Australia. For great resources and a free student membership, find us at fba.com.au. Good advice makes for great futures.